0: turn in our Bibles to Romans 8. We'll be looking at verses 33 and 34. Romans eight, thirty-three 33 and 34 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Let's pick up, like we always do, back up a little bit, pick up a little bit of review, so we know right where we're at in the text. Um, Obviously this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, to that church that was in Rome there. And he tells them he's going to declare the gospel unto them. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then he obviously went through the bad news through Romans 1:18 through Romans 3:20 What's bad news. Showed that man is sinful. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There in Romans 3:23, uh, verse 21 of Romans 3, he transitions into the gospel. Um, And he declares the gospel unto us for a couple chapters there and then chapter 6 and 7 He deals with two arguments that could be raised by what he just taught about the gospel and it's What about the law Paul? If a man is justified apart from the law, what about the law and he deals with that in Romans 7? And he says in in Romans 6 he deals with those that said well Where sin did abound grace did much more abound shall we continue in sin that grace abounds even more? And he dealt with that in chapter 6 in chapter 8, so far, what we've been seeing is this is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've seen it over and over again that the word pneuma, which is the word for spirit, is used 22 times in this chapter that there's ever a chapter in Scripture that was dealing with the spirit is Romans chapter 8. And I mentioned it many times, but you notice in Romans chapter 8, there's not people running up and down aisles. They're not flipping all over the floor like fish out of water. They're not speaking in tongues. They're not healing. They're being changed. They're looking to Christ. And their lives are being changed. And Paul then gets into the sufferings of those Christians that were there in Rome. And he dealt with their sufferings. And he told them that even though you're suffering, that all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day that there is no more suffering. And then he tells them that all things work together for their good, even their suffering. It causes... God causes all things to work together for your good, even your suffering. Not just the good things. We always That's easy to do, right? We can look at all the good things and say, well, this worked together for my good, yep. But how about the bad things? How about the things when you're suffering? And these Roman Christians were suffering far worse than any of us were. They were suffering to when the Romans showed up and they said, you need to say Caesar is Lord, and they would not say it. They would kill him or imprison him. So their suffering was great, and Paul tells them that God is causing all those things for their good. And then we saw last week in verses 31 and 32, it says, What what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? And he said, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And remember I brought out that it wasn't just giving us all things, all good things. It's also giving us the bad things. It's also giving us the sufferings where it says in Philippians 1.29, it says, For it has been granted unto you, it has been given unto you, not only to believe upon Christ, but also to suffer. So suffering was a gift. That's what it says. And then our verses here. Now I always mess this word up, and I don't know why, so it's kind of easy. But it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, there's a term it's called Hebrew parallelism and these two verses are almost parallel to the previous two verses we just looked at so let's let's get kinda into this I got three points today the first is the ungodly's accusations the second is the God who justifies and the third is the son who intercedes so the first point here the ungodly's accusations so we Obviously, we don't, don't want to disconnect these verses from what was, what was just said. It's Paul reiterating what was just said. If God is for you, who is against you? And who will bring a charge against God's elect? They're synonyms. They're, they're parallels. They're the same thing. Now, obviously, this is a rhetorical question, right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is obvious. No one will bring a charge against God's elect. However they do, though, don't they? They do bring charges against us. People accuse God's elect of all kinds of stuff in this life, right? I mean, don't we have, actually today we have fact checkers that if you're not going with the narrative, they tell you that you're lying. Also, do not Christians get called bigots by those when we say, well, that's a sin, you ought to stop doing that. They say, well, you're just a bigot. That's bringing the accusation against us. And throughout history, have Christians not been charged as criminals before? I mean, wasn't the guy that was writing this letter thrown into prison for preaching the gospel? Did some, somebody brought a charge up against him? You're preaching the gospel, Paul. You're going to prison. Not only that, but wasn't Paul, before his conversion bringing letters to Damascus to bring charges against Christians because they were seen as heretics the early Christians were seen as heretics Paul's headed to Damascus to bring charges up against them but the same guy writes this right here so is this true or not in Romans eight twenty three, where it says Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody, and he he continues on for the rest of the chapter showing nothing or nobody. This is speaking of the only courtroom that truly matters in the case of justification. Paul is not dealing with the kangaroo courts of men. Of course, Christians have been charged with blasphemy and heresy in the false courts of men. However, he's speaking of a much higher court, the court of the Almighty. That's the courtroom that he's talking about, the courtroom of the Almighty. And that's our scene in these two verses. So the ultimate question is, in the courtroom of God, who will bring a charge against God's elect? This means to call in a charge or to call into question. Who's going to do that in the courtroom of God? Who's going to call in a question or call in a charge against God's elect in the courtroom of God? And it's actually interesting that it says it's to call in a charge and it's against God's elect who are called the called out ones. That's what the word elect means, called out. So they're trying to call in a charge against those that God's called out. So if God's called you out. Nobody can charge bring a charge against you to God. Nobody can. God is the only one that brings up charges in this courtroom. He is the one who we have sinned against. He is not only the lawgiver, but He's also the judge. So He's given us a law, we broke the law, and now He's the judge that we must stand before. And nobody else can bring a charge against us. Nothing anybody says against you to God matters if you're one of His elect. You know, I might come back to this this in application, but this should teach us something. To not defend ourselves when false accusations fly. We don't need to. The unbelieving world will bring false accusations against you, brother. It will happen. They will hate the true Christians, right? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me. Now, they, they do love a false deity named Jesus, who so they say is Jesus. Wasn't Jesus so nice to everybody? Uh, have you read Matthew 23? He wasn't that nice in Matthew 23 to the religious hypocrites of his the day. They hate the true Christ, they hate true Christians, and they will lie and bring up false charges against you to try to make themselves look better. However, keep calling them out on their sin. Don't worry about them. Even when they say, look, there's that Christian. He's a hypocrite because he still sins. (laughs) If they only knew, right? Sinning doesn't make you a hypocrite. Saying I don't sin and sinning makes you a hypocrite. And the unbelievers actually do this far quicker than we do. We recognize that we sin and fall and fail. And it's because of this that we look to our Savior they make excuses they point the finger then they say ah but the Christian does worse than me but who will bring a charge against God's elect this term God's elect should teach us something also God doesn't elect those he thought were better than others he doesn't elect the most righteous ones that he could find. He doesn't look down and say, "Well, this person is doing much better than this person. Let me elect that one." He elects whom he wills. Let's see this. Turn with me to First uh, Corinthians chapter one. And we're going to see a lot of this when we make it to Romans chapter nine. But not there yet. Give me about another year. One 8. Romans 1, 26. I mean, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things... Of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord God chooses the foolish Weak, base things. That's what the text says. He chooses those things. Not the wise, the strong, and the high things, but the weak, the foolish, and the base things. And funny how this flies right in the the face of modern religion, right? And even those that claim that your children have favor because they do. Base things here are are those of no family. Lowly born. God chooses those whom the world rejects. We look, as the world, we look for the strongest, smartest, most charismatic, do we not? When we don't want a leader, we want the strongest, smartest, most charismatic leader. We actually see this, this is in my notes, but we see this with, before he was King David, but with David, right? They wanted a king, and they saw Saul, and he was was taller than everybody else and better looking than everybody else. That's the guy that we want. But God chose David, the young man. I think David slew a lion and a bear, I might have chose him. At least to be my friend. But we want to see the smartest, strongest, most charismatic. God chooses the weakest, the most foolish, and those of no genealogy, the lowly. He chooses the ones that the world brings charges against anyways. They charge them with being stupid, weak, foolish, of no respectable family, right? That's what the world sees when they see... Zach, you want to get that? The world rejects them, but God... Chooses those ones. God chooses them. Can you identify with this? Weak, foolish, base? Or are you 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 big and small smart and strong? And God chooses the weak, foolish, and base things. The things that the world rejects. You know why he does it? He tells us in our text. That his name may be glorified. That the world may know that it is only by the power of God that this person has changed. I hope you can say the same thing with that, right? When you look in the mirror, you know, I would be so much worse if it wasn't for God changing me. This is how one could go from being a coward and denying Christ three times at his crucifixion to preaching the the gospel to thousands and like, I don't care if you kill me. And they did. This is how one could go from what we like to say the doubting Thomas. He was doubting that Christ was actually risen to being thrust through with the spear as a missionary who gave up his life for Christ. This is God's doing. He calls out, He chooses. And those whom he elects, calls out, nobody can bring a charge against them. It will not stand in the courtroom of God. The second point is the God who justifies. I'm going to go back here to Romans 8. For it is God that justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect ones because it is God who justifies. He, as I've already said, is the lawgiver and the judge. He's the only lawgiver and judge. Who are you to bring a charge up against one that he has chosen? It's his courtroom. He owns the courtroom. Do you think for a second God would allow a repubate's accusations to fly in his courtroom? Not at all. It is he who justifies. It's God that declares us just in His sight. Mm -hmm. Let me bring this out real quick. It's what we call imputed righteousness that justifies us. Imputed righteousness is why we can stand just. I can stand just before God because I have imputed righteousness. Like Jeremy, I don't even know what that means. It means that God has, when Christ came and fulfilled the law and did all these good works and never sinned, that righteousness is Credited to my account by God. It's mine. I have a perfect righteousness now. Not because I do it, but because Christ did it for me. It's not that our good outweighs our bad. There's not a divine scale and you're you're trying to tip the scale to the good side. It's not because of our baptism. It's not because we're here sitting in church. It's not because you're taking communion. It's not because of any of your good works. It's not even because the preacher can stand up here and preach. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's imputed righteousness. That's how you get it. It's His perfect work of fulfilling righteousness for us and it being credited to us that God can call us just. That's the only way. That's the only way. There aren't many ways to be just before God. There's only one way. And it's through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not, You know, there's a, there's a great big church out there. I wouldn't even call it a church, but... They, they say it's infused righteousness. They, the righteousness of Christ is infused to you, and they say it's infused to you when you were baptized, and original sin was removed, and in, righteousness was infused to you, and you can lose that righteousness. This is not the righteousness of the Bible. We don't become righteous and are able to lose that righteousness. We are declared righteous, and the declaration is by God, and nobody can take it. If God declared you righteous, you are righteous by imputed righteousness. It's because of Christ's righteousness and you being in Christ. That's what, if y'all remember when I was dealing with the union with Christ, that's what union with Christ gives us. It gives us his imputed righteousness. I am one with Christ. You go from union with Adam, where you're a sinner, you're born a sinner, and if you die in your union with Adam, you go to hell. To your union with Christ, by faith, I have union with Christ, Adam sinned, it was credited to me. Christ did not sin. All he did was righteousness, and it was credited to me as my federal head. And what we saw in 1 Corinthians 1 actually agrees with this completely, does it not? That he is our justification, our sanctification, and our righteousness, and our redemption. He is that, and I have it perfectly. Because he's given it to them. And nobody can take it from them. No matter what. We can be thrown into prison. These Romans were being thrown into prison, being killed. Nobody can take it from them. That's what Paul's point is. He's preaching to people that are dying, that are being thrown into prison. He's saying, you're suffering? Don't even think about your suffering. Because there's coming a day there will be no more suffering. And no matter what they say about you, don't worry about it. Because God... Justifies. And you stand just before him today, and no matter what they do, they could kill your whole family, they could kill you, they can never take this justification away from you. And this is the great theme through the rest of the chapter. And if you miss that, you're missing the whole point of the chapter. This is the great theme. This is what he's taking us through. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nobody can be against you. Nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's remember our context in Romans 8. <clears throat> First, it's the work of the Spirit. But let us remember that Paul's been dealing with the sufferings that Christians go through. And in particular, the sufferings of the early Romans, Christians, who were seen as atheists or heretics and being killed for their faith. So they were actually being delivered up to the magistrate and being put to death. But God in this is saying, I have delivered my son for you. That's what he says in the previous verse. I have delivered my son for you, and who shall lay a charge to your account? I am the one who justifies. Let us not miss miss the next phrase though. It says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who is it? Who's the one who condemns? The pagan? The atheist? The state? Nope. The only one that truly condemns is the same one that justifies us. Let's see this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 28. It'll go backwards in your body. Matthew 10, verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And it says, Do not fear him that can destroy your body, but cannot destroy your soul. But fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is condemnation. And who's it talking about? God Almighty. He's the only one that can do that. And it says to fear Him. But I thought we weren't supposed to fear God. You can't show me that from Scripture. I can show you just the opposite. It commands us to fear God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us to serve God with reverence and godly fear. And then he tells us why. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. And that was written to Christians. To serve God out of reverence and godly fear. So we ought to have a healthy fear of God. It's called reverence. This is why when God's commanded us to worship in a certain way, we ought to worship in that way and no other way. Because we can read through Scripture, and we'll actually see it when we go to take the Lord's Supper. But God has killed people for worshiping Him in ways that He did not command them to. Aaron's sons, for example, and those people in Corinth. I think I rabbit trailed enough there. I don't know where I'm at now. We're to fear God. He is the one who condemns. Man can't condemn us. Man can't destroy you. He may be in this life for you, but as a Christian, that would be the best day of your life. If they take your life from you today, this, that will be the best day of your life. Is that not what we want? We want to be in glory, right? Now obviously we want to be here with our families too, right? And our friends, but if God were to have somebody cut me off today, you think I'm gonna complain when I get to heaven? God, please send me back to earth. (laughs) I love all that suffering and sin and death that's down there. No, it'd be the best day. Let's move on in our text though, in Romans, and let me sum up what we've seen so far. Nobody can call in a charge against God's called-out ones, because God is the one who justifies and condemns in His court. Now Paul explains how. How does He justify? Why why the, the charges can't be brought up against you? Let's read the text again. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? This third point, the son who intercedes. Christ Jesus was condemned in your place, Christian. That's what it means when he died. It says in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him to be sin for us. He made, God made the son to be sin for us. It says who knew no sin. He did not have a loving relationship with sin. He had no sin. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was condemned in our place. He was made sin for us. He was condemned on a tree as a curse to reverse the curse for his people. God is the one who condemns and he condemned his son in your place. This is actually parallel to verse 32 where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but del- delivered him up for us all. The, the delivering up was to a Roman cross to be crushed in your place. This is where your sins were taken. If you're a Christian, that's where your sins were taken. They are taken to the Roman cross. Jesus was, I, I don't know if you ever heard the term scapegoat. Scapegoat, but it comes from Scripture. Jesus is our scapegoat. What it did in the old covenant, what they would do is they would, they would the high priest would lay his hands on a goat and he would confess the sins of the people and they'd send the goat outside of the city to die says in Hebrews 13, 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. He was, he was crucified outside the gate. He went outside the city. Our sins were laid upon him. He was sent outside the city, and he was crushed for us. He took the sins of his people, went outside the gate, and died for their sins. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died as a substitute. There's not a big word here, but we should know these words. He was a, a substitutionary atonement. He was a substitutionary atonement. Now, y'all know what substitute is. Well, for the most part, probably, if you went to public school, you probably know, because that was the best days of school, right? When the substitute teacher was there. And they didn't know how bad you actually were. So you could slide some stuff in that you wouldn't do when your regular teacher was there because they know how bad you are. But it was a substitute, one that was in place of the other teacher. That's what Jesus was for us. He was our substitute. He was in our place. On that cross, that's where we should have been at. That's where we should be at. But he substituted for us, and it was an atonement. The eternal one came and died in your place as a substitute for sins of his people and truly atoned for sins. His death brought peace with God. You have peace with God? That's what atonement is. It's, we, we saw that in Romans 5, 1 when it says we have peace with God. You have peace with God today because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. If, you don't, if he was not your substitute, you do not have peace with God. Even though you may feel like I have peace with God, if you're not in Christ, you do not have peace with God. That's what true atonement does. It brings peace, and we have it through the blood of the Son. However, if Jesus simply died, that wouldn't be good news for us, would it? If that's where it ended. If we could go dig up the bones of Jesus right now, what what kind of good news is that? That's not good news at all. And good thing the text doesn't stop there, does it? He says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. That's good news now. He didn't simply die. He was raised, and it says, and is at the right hand of God, and intercedes for us. He defeated death for the elect. That's what it means. When his resurrection, his resurrection, he defeated death. Death thought they won when he was crucified and buried. But three days later, he rose from the grave, showing death has no power over me. I've risen defeated death, Satan hell. And then he tells us in, in John chapter 11 he says if you believe in me you'll never die. I think as Christians we shouldn't talk about death as a Christian. In the sense that I'm I will never die. Jesus said I'll never die. Because what, what what's death for the Christian? It's going from life to life. It's not death. That's why scripture talks about sleep. But so he defeated death for the elect. This is who this is talking about again, the elect. The group of people doesn't change in the context. In our context right here, the group doesn't, have, doesn't change. It's those, if you remember this, it's those who he foreknew, he called, he justified, he glorified and nobody can bring a charge against them. That that same group all the way through. It doesn't change. He doesn't go from this group over here to this group over here. It's the same ones he foreknew. Nobody can bring a charge against them. And everything in between. And they're the same ones that God delivered up his son for. And he died, rose, ascended, and intercedes for us. I want you to see this. The ones that Jesus intercedes for are the ones he died for. This is a, his office as of the high priest. When we get to it, we'll get to it in our confession when it speaks about you know, Christ in a threefold office. He's prophet, priest, and king. In his priestly office, he dies for his people and he intercedes for them. So he intercedes for the same people that he died for. And when we think about Christ being a high priest, our minds should go at least two places. First, to the book of Hebrews, which is, lays down in detail Christ as the high priest. But also to John chapter 17. And I'm going to go there. Let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 has been described as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It might even say it in your Bible above the, the thing. I don't know if my, this Bible says it or not. John 17. I'm going to start in verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, "Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou hast gavest, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So you see the picture there, the Father has given some to the Son, and those are the ones that God, that the Son gave eternal life to. And then he says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. That's eternal life. That's salvation right there. Salvation is knowing God. In verse 4, I glorify Thee on earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given me to do. And now glorify Thou me together with Thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. I manifested Thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. Now, this is NASB. I know KJV and ESB has it, and I like that better. I pray on their behalf. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. This is Jesus making intercession for his people. He says, I pray on your behalf, disciples, those Christians that, that, that I was talking to, that, that were with me, I pray for them. But he, he notice he says, I do not pray for the world. I pray for the ones that, that the Father has given me. Those are the ones I prayed for. Why? Because those are the ones that I died for. They go hand in hand. If Jesus died for them, then he intercedes for them. They aren't his sheep. Jesus came, and died for a sheep. He says he died. to to save his people from their sins. He intercedes for his people. This is actually the Old Testament priest did the same. Though the Old Testament priest was a shadow, the Old Testament priest, you know what they did? They made a sacrifice, and they interceded for Israel. Not the Philistines. Not the Egyptians. Not the Amorites. Not the Edomites. They made sacrifice for Israel and interceded for Israel. Now Jesus comes along as the true high priest and makes sacrifice and intercedes for the true Israel. As Paul calls the church in Galatia, he calls that church, which was a Gentile church, he says, you are the Israel of God. He only intercedes for those for whom he died. Those that were given to him by his father. And it says as much in Romans chapter 8. It says he intercedes for us. Who's us? The Christians he was writing to. The same group that he says they foreknew, called, justified, glorified. Nobody can bring a charge against you. God has delivered up his son for you and he intercedes for us. The same ones that the, the father gave up his son to take away their sins. He takes away their sins and he intercedes for us. Us is the church. And it is through this perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession that you are justified with God. And nobody can bring a charge against you. Any charge that could be brought against you would just be a sin that you committed, right? And there stands a bloody lamb in your place that died for that sin. Bring a charge against me. What, what charge are you going to bring against me? Oh, I sinned? Yes, I did. But guess what? My sins have been taken away and placed upon Christ, and he died for my sins, and they're gone. Whose words are more powerful? The Lamb of God or the accusations of men? The blood of the Lamb of God speaks much louder than the accusations of men and because of this you will not be condemned but you are justified and nobody can change that fact it is God who justifies and condemns if he condemned his son on the cross in your place he will also justify you and nobody can stop him and you can never lose him rest in that Christian to repeat what Paul said right before this if God is for you who can be against you Amen. Move into our application here. Call to faith and repentance. Now I know sometimes y'all probably have thoughts like why Jeremy, why do you do this every week? Why do you go to the unbeliever every week? Because I don't want one person coming in here and hearing the Word of God, leaving, dying, and going to hell. I feel I, I would fail you if I didn't call you to faith and repentance. So I come to the unbeliever at every message at this point. This is directed at those that do not know Christ. Or maybe don't know if they know Christ. Or maybe think that they know Christ because they really don't know Christ. The ultimate fact is, I can't bring a charge against you in God's courtroom. God is the one who condemns or justifies Yet, because of your unbelief, you stand condemned already. If you don't believe upon the Son, you stand condemned already. It says in John chapter 3, it says, He that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you don't believe upon Christ, you are condemned already. And later in that chapter, it says that the wrath of God abides upon you. I know you're like, I'm not that bad, though. I see worse people out there. The book of James tells us that if we've kept the whole law, which none of us have done, but if we, kept, if we did keep the whole law, yet we offended one point, we're guilty of all of it. Any of us here want to say that we've never sinned? And the fact is we've all offended more than one point. Every single one of us. One lie is enough to condemn you to hell for all of eternity. we've all done this, right? The scriptures tell me that. Let God be true in all men liars. So outside of Christ is condemnation due to your unbelief in sin. However, as was presented in the text, Christ died for sin. Jesus was actually called Jesus. His name is Jesus because it says in Matthew 1.21 that He will save his people from their sins. His name actually means salvation. Yeshua is salvation. And it's all over the Old Covenant too. Jesus was in the Old Covenant. Oh yes he was. He was all over the Old Covenant. Whenever you see the term salvation, that's Yeshua. That's what his name was. And he was given that name for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior. He died for sin and rose from the grave on the third day. And he was seen of over 500 people. Now this isn't just some cool story. This isn't something we just come to church and, and, and you know play, play church on Sunday. This actually happened. And it happened for a reason. It happened so that God could justify people that didn't deserve it. None of us in here deserve salvation. None of us in here deserve to be called just by God. Yet He does. He did it so... He didn't condemn people that did deserve it. We all deserve to be condemned. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it says the wages of sin is death. So we all earn death. But Romans 3, 25 and 26 teaches us that, that God might be just and the justifier of him that believes upon Jesus. He remains just. Why? Because sin was paid for on that cross. And he justifies those that believe upon him, Jesus. So you're called this morning, unbeliever? is not to do better, is not to work harder, is not to do good works, but is to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, rather, He is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And to the believers here, I think we can learn from our text this morning, to repent of caring what others think we want to be accepted by everyone right however we know that there will be accusations brought against us if we are actually following christ and preaching his gospel you're following christ preaching his gospel there's going to be some people that's going to hate you and they're going to bring accusations Sometimes we don't say something. I don't want to offend that person. We hold back because we don't want to offend someone and then make accusations against us. So we don't preach the gospel. You don't want to hear you're mean, you're too religious, you're a Bible thumper. <laughs> oh, he's not loving. Let the accusations fly. If we're doing what God commands us to do, it is loving to tell somebody they will die in their sins if they don't look to Christ. There's nothing more about it. Who cares what the unbelieving world thinks of you? Keep pressing on and repent of caring what they think. You're called to something higher and we should only care about one what one thinks, not what the world thinks. It's him who we believe upon. Him that died, risen, who is seated at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. So look to him when accusations fly. Remember, he actually gave us an example of this in 1 Peter 2, 26. It says, who, talking about Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So... When he was reviled, when he suffered, he threatened not. Could God, the son, he even said, like to call down 12 legions of angels. You know, in the old covenant, there was a time when one angel came down and, I was going to say slew, uh, killed 185,000 people. One angel killed 185,000 people. And Jesus said, I have 12 legions of angels. There's not enough people on earth to stop that. And he could have called them all down, and he could have obliterated the earth, but he did not, did he? As Isaiah 53 tells us that he went as a lamb before his shears is dumb, he put up in not his mouth. He could have, but he didn't. When we reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him and judged righteously. That should be our practice. God takes vengeance, not us. What does my name mean at the end of my life? Nothing compared to his, right? He will vindicate. Just wipe the dust off your shoes and move on. So let's move on to our call to war. Brethren, we're in spiritual warfare. Whether you want to believe it or not. Even when you don't see it, it's happening. Remember Elisha from last week? We went there and saw that. Elisha, he saw those chariots of fire. It was him and his servant. Elisha saw the chariots of fire. The servant didn't see the chariots of fire. But they were actually there. The servant didn't see them, but they were actually there. That was real. There are things that don't, we don't see happening around us. I'm not, I'm not going to expound on that too much there. But not what we don't see, but what we do see. That's what I want to look at. What we do see. Now, there, yeah, there are, there are maybe chariots of fire out here. I don't see them. What I do see is a lost dying world in front of me. We see that there are unbelievers around us. We see that the wickedness that happens in this world. What are we called to do with that? We are called to take the gospel to them and to pray for them. Are you doing that? That's the call to war. Are you doing that? This is our time. You know. I like to read about church history and stuff like that. hundred years ago, that wasn't my time. That was their time then. That was was Spurgeon's time or Lloyd-Jones' time. You know, 200 years ago, that was their time. That wasn't my time. 300 years, now is my time and your time, right? God has given you this time right now and the people around you to take forth the gospel to. He's placed you in this church too to work alongside of us. Not simply to come and hear a message and go about your week unchanged and apathetic. That's what we do often as Christians, though, is we spend an hour, two hours, Sunday morning. Nobody even knows we're Christian Monday through Friday, right? Monday through Saturday, maybe. But that one hour, two hours on Sunday morning, that's not what we're called to as Christians. And if that describes you, it's time to repent. He's called us to more. You're like, But I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to the unbelievers now. We'll learn it. We can all learn it, right? We have more resources today than ever before in history. We, of all people, have no excuse not to be good soldiers for His glory. We literally have a small device that fits in our pocket that we take with us everywhere, and most of us can't go anywhere without it. You leave the house, and you're not even 10 seconds down the road, and you're like, My phone. That little device that we carry around with us everywhere has all the information that we'd ever need. We have no excuse to not know. We have no excuse to not be be talking to people. Yet we sit back and say, I don't know. Or I need to spend more time in the Word. I say this often because this is is actually amazing in our day. Now, we don't think of it as amazing, but in all of the history of man, they've never had a little tiny device that you could sit in your pocket, you could press play on the Bible, and the the thing would read it for you. And yet we don't spend time in God's Word. You literally could press play on the thing and, and go about your day as it's playing for you. Somebody else is reading it for you. We have no excuse on that, right? We need to prepare ourselves for battle. The cults are out there preparing themselves. Believe me, I brought this up a few times since that we evangelized down there in Myrtle. Those guys knew their Bible better than most Christians I talked to. They're heretics though. You think they're not preparing? You think every single time something was come up, he was like, turn to this, turn to that, turn to this. Because he knew him right off the top of his head. And are we not to? Prepare yourself for battle. Are the true people of God to do less than the unbelieving world? Gird up, it's, it tells us, gird up the loins of your mind. That means to get ready for battle. The battlefield is your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Soaking God's word on a regular basis and take it to the lost world around you. And don't Fear their accusations because God is the one who justifies. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Amen.